Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Thank you for joining us today. And we're here live in WKLC Studios in downtown Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. Today we're picking up on a, a two-part uh, episode or a two-part discussion on holy baptism. And we're going to start our discussion of the sacraments. And I suppose before we we do that, we should probably define terms a little bit because uh, I know, Lauren, you and I know what we're talking about when we talk about the sacraments, but somebody from a different background would probably have no idea, or they would have a different idea, at least in their head, when we look at, uh, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, they talk about seven sacraments. In the Lutheran Church, we talk about two, and in most Reformed churches, they talk about two. But I suppose we should probably talk about what that means and a little bit about some other uh, basic understandings of what, what a sacrament is and how it works before we begin our discussion. So, what do we mean by sacrament? Well, first of all, that that term, sacrament, comes from a Latin term that simply means mystery. St. Paul talks about being a steward of the mysteries of God. And uh, that's why in some churches you'll have seven sacraments, because they would say those are included in the mysteries of God. They'll include things like marriage or ordination, a, a confirmation, whatever it might be. But in the Lutheran Church, we define sacrament a little bit uh, more narrowly. And by a sacrament, we mean a sacred act. That's the first part. It's got to be a sacred act instituted by God himself or by Christ himself, more specifically, in which there are certain external means connected with his word. So, obviously, it's the word that comes to the element that makes this a sacrament. And, of course, then through which or by which God offers, gives, bestows, or seals to us the forgiveness of sins which Christ earned for us. So, by that definition, again, it's a sacred act. That's the first part. It's instituted by God himself. That's the second part. The third part is in which there are certain external means. In terms of uh, baptism, the external means would be water. In terms of the Lord's Supper, the external means would be bread and wine. And then the fourth part, uh, by which or through which God gives, offers, bestows, seals to us the forgiveness of sins which Christ has earned for us. So you can see how this is, is taking off on that discussion of salvation distributed. Jesus has won all the treasures of salvation for us. He said it is finished on the cross. But how does God bring us or how do we receive that forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation that Christ has won for all sinners? Well, here we talk about how God has come to us through means, through means of his word, through means of the sacraments. So this is where it's good to understand there's, there's two directions we think about in worship. In the Old Testament, you had the job of priests, and the priest's job was to offer up sacrifices on behalf of God's people to God. You read through those first five books of the Old Testament, well, and, and more. Uh, you certainly hear reference to those sacrifices, but other things can be considered sacrificial as well. We think about Psalm 141, let my prayers rise before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So, in a certain sense, prayer it has this sacrificial direction. We offer up prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. 
But you could say the opposite direction of that is what we call a sacramental act, when God works for the benefit of man. So whereas in the sacrificial direction, man is offering something up to God, in the sacramental direction, it's God who is descending to man for his benefit. So those two directions are, in some ways, you know, complete opposites. And even in our church services, you'll see that the pastor sometimes faces the altar and sometimes faces the congregation. And we say that this is the two directions there. When he's facing the altar, he's acting in a sacrificial way on behalf of the congregation, offering up prayers, praise, and thanksgiving, to which the congregation offers its amen. Or when he's facing the congregation, he is there speaking in, you know, on behalf of God as God's mouthpiece, uh, either reading the scriptures, proclaiming the scriptures, distributing the sacraments, whatever it might be. So those would be the sacramental portions of the liturgy or of our worship. But again, uh, I think this is an important distinction because within Christianity today, when we start talking about baptism, you'll see that in the Reformed churches, that would be the non-Lutheran Protestant churches, uh, most often the view of, say, baptism is that it is something sacrificial. It's something that we offer to God to show him how dedicated we are to him or how obedient we are to him. And the main reason we do it is in obedience to his command. Obviously, as Lutherans or the Roman Catholics or the Orthodox would have a very different view of that. So I guess one of the guiding questions we can ask ourselves as we go through this, as we look at the Bible verses, is this something that man is offering to God or is this something that God is working through for the benefit of man? In other words, is it sacrificial or is it sacramental? And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, I guess this notion of God working through means is very, very foreign. And uh, I should have mentioned that uh, part of that goes back, you know, early, early, early in the Christian uh, church, in the early centuries of the church, there was a heresy called Gnosticism. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of that heresy at this point. We could probably do a whole episode on that. But in essence, the Gnostic view of the world was dualistic. There's the material world, and then there's the spiritual world. But the two do not mix, so to speak. So you've got your material world over here, but the spiritual world is good, but there's not really any correlation. In fact, they would say the material world is bad, and really salvation itself in the Gnostic mindset is to escape the material world. And in some ways, that viewpoint, Gnosticism, still infects modern theology. It still infects our worldviews. For a lot of people, the idea that God would work through means of the material things of this world is completely foreign. And yet when we go to the pages of Scripture, we see it already with the Garden of Eden. You know, he places Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them the task of, you know, uh, ruling over the, the garden and the animals and so on and so forth. And in response, uh, you know, they're able to eat the food that God has given them. And through that, God bestows life upon them through means of the food that they eat. And they also, in turn, would use the material things to offer their worship to God, offering him the first fruits or whatever it might be. So this notion uh, that the two worlds don't mix, the material and spiritual, is certainly not biblical. 
but it is predominant in most people's spirituality to date. I mean, to this day, that's generally the, the viewpoint that many people have. They, there's a big disconnect between the material and spiritual realm. And of course, uh, you know, Jesus himself would demonstrate that that's, that's not true. Uh, he would go around healing diseases and, uh, you know, people with various sicknesses and ailments and disfigurements and whatever it might be. And then he would say something like, you know, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You go, wait a second. What does it have to do with, you know, that kind of healing that you're doing? Uh, because obviously all of the things that we witness, the sicknesses, diseases, and so on, are a result of sin entering the world. In other words, it's a spiritual problem. So the two things are always interacting. Now, anyways, that's that's a whole discussion for another day, and I don't want to confuse you or, or go too far into it, but I think that's kind of in the background. Why do some Christians believe that the sacraments, so to speak, are simply something that we offer to God? Look at how obedient we are to you, God rather than something that God does for us. And again, if we, if we just stick with the clear passages of Scripture, we'll see it's actually not that confusing. And here again, I would refer to uh, an earlier episode where I talked about some of the hermeneutical principles of Bible interpretation that we sometimes employ. And one in, in particular we call the analogy of faith, where we take the sum total of all that the Bible says on any given subject, and we let those verses speak and form our understanding of a topic. Uh, we don't just take one verse out of context or say that this is all that the Bible says about it. No, obviously we let all of those verses speak in unison together, unified. If there one seems unclear to us, we use the other ones to shed light on it. So when we do that with holy baptism, it's actually not very complicated. In fact, the Bible is incredibly consistent. So Let's, let's take a look at some of those things now. Uh, first of all, we would probably ask the question, who instituted holy baptism? Uh, we know that uh, the Jews practice various types of baptism, not Christian baptism, but we'll talk about what that term even means and how they practice that. We know that John the Baptist came preaching a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he says this uh, in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission, right? Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And you could say the next part is the how. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, disciples are made by baptizing and teaching. And sometimes uh, it, that order is reversed by teaching and baptizing. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well, too. So Jesus himself is the one who instituted this sacred act that we call baptism. So that would fit the, the first two criteria of our definition of a sacrament. It's a sacred act instituted by God himself, here Christ. And... Uh, what does that term baptize even mean? In the Greek, the word is baptizo. So, John would say, I baptize you with water for repentance. And in its simplest sense, the verb in Greek, baptizo, just simply means to apply water. And obviously, uh, when we talk about Christian baptism, we're not just talking about mere water. It's something more sacred, something more special. 
And there's also the aspect that God's word is added to the water. But again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. In its simplest sense, to baptize means to apply water. And that can be done in a variety of ways. As we see in Mark chapter 7, it talks about the Pharisees and all the Jews, how they do not eat unless they wash. And there, that word in the Greek is baptize. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing. There again is the word baptize. The washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So again, the word wash here in the Greek is the same word that is that comes to us as baptize. So it means to apply water. And we, we can see by the list of things that were given us there, uh, you know, cups, pots, copper vessels, that that washing can certainly be done by immersing something underwater. But not, but not, not only, right? You can pour water on something. You can also sprinkle water on something. That would certainly be the case with dining couches. You're not going to fully immerse a dining couch before eating or something like that. So we have an early church document called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve. It's from the first century. And you can go Google this and read it for yourself. It doesn't make it into the scriptures because it's really more of a church manual than anything, but we do know that it dates to the first century. And it does shed some light onto the early Christian practices in the first century church. And there would talk about baptizing, using living water or running water. And, you know, if that's not available, then you can also pour water. So I, I bring this up because there are some churches and usually those that teach that baptism is something that you do to satisfy a command of God, something sacrificial, that would say that the only way you can baptize is by full immersion, going down under the water fully and then coming up. Simply not true. It's not the way the, the word is used in the scriptures. We don't say there's, a, there's anything wrong with that. Certainly, you know, that is a way that you can baptize. But to say it's the only way is to say more than what the Bible itself says. And remember, uh, we have to be careful. We always run into a danger when we say more than the scriptures or we say less than the scriptures. In the book of Acts, we hear the command to rise and be baptized, wash away your sins. So again, this is a washing. It is an application of water. Uh, we'll come back to this because it talks about the washing away of sins. And that'll become important for our understanding. In Matthew 28, again, uh, Jesus had said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is a baptism done in the name of the triune God. We say this is, this is the baptismal formula. A proper Christian baptism is one which is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We don't just pour water. We have the, the word of God, the command of God, that is also repeated there and joined to that water. So we'd say, Lauren, Lauren Thompson, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would, we would say them by name, but then God himself is placing his name upon that child, marking him as his own, as his redeemed, as he who's been marked by the triune God. Galatians 3. St. Paul says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have been clothed with Christ, some translations say. So I guess I would ask at this point, does, does this say that baptism is merely a symbolic 
putting on of Christ? Does it say, uh, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have symbolically clothed yourself with Christ? It doesn't say that. It says you have put on Christ. And uh, I think here's where a lot of people will read that verse assuming one thing, you know, this means symbolically. But we have to be careful. Again, what does the scripture actually say? And we'll see that that's actually not unique. I mean, it's, it's what's said everywhere. And again, sometimes some people have a problem with this idea of God working through baptism because it sounds completely foreign to their idea. So we're saved by faith. So what are you, you're going you're to tell me that something like baptism saves me. Isn't that contrary to saying that we're saved by faith alone then? And we would say, no, because we're talking about what are the ways that God brings us the salvation that he's won through Jesus. Well, we know he, he comes through his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And the gospel comes to us in baptism too. It's not a different word. It's not a different gospel. It's the same gospel. It just comes to us in a slightly different way, but it brings the same treasures. So, Again, that's probably getting ahead of myself here. But Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Washing of water with the word. And some people will say, well, it doesn't say it's baptism there. And I'll say, okay, fair enough. But name me one, any other washing with water and the word in the New Testament that is not baptism, that sanctifies the church. Uh, I'll wait. I, I'm, you know, I'll give you, give you as long as you need. You, you just <laughs> won't find it. So the, the point there is, uh, yes, this is a reference to baptism, but notice what it, uh, Paul says that it does. Through it, Christ sanctifies his church. He cleansed her by means of the washing of water with the word. So, quite literally, baptism means to apply water, to wash. Baptism is to be done in the name of the triune God. And baptism is not a, a, a simply a picture or a symbol. Through baptism, God truly makes us his own and he connects himself to us. Now, we would say, as we speak about baptism, there are other sects, if you will, S-E-C-T-S, uh, that, that teach a baptism. So I'm thinking specifically of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they might even say in their baptismal rites something about baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we have to look at their theology. They deny that the Son is actually God in the flesh, uh, you know, equal to the Father and the Spirit. So if you deny the Trinity, it's really not a Christian baptism that you administer, even if you're saying those words. So where the doctrine of the Trinity is denied, there is no baptism, even though somebody may have gone through that. Now, the question is, who is to be baptized according to the scriptures? And of course, if, if you uh, are aware of the various denominations in Christianity, you realize that there are some that baptize infants, you know, babies, there are some that would say, nope, babies cannot and should not be baptized. Uh, that has to happen much later when a person can make that decision for themselves. They have to reach an age of discretion. Their sins don't count against them until a certain point. Uh, all well and dandy, uh, but it's all based on the premise that 
baptism as something that you offer to God in obedience to him, and therefore uh, an infant is certainly not capable of doing that. Now, if that's your view, I guess I can understand. But we would say, what do the scriptures say? What does the Bible say? Jesus in the Great Commission said simply, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, um, all nations seems pretty, pretty specific and at the same time all-inclusive. Uh, who does it exclude? I mean, does, would that exclude babies? Uh, no, I think babies are included in all nations. Um, so, you know, sometimes people will get smart and they'll say, well, show me in the Bible where it says to baptize babies. Where does it say the words, you know, go baptize babies? And they'll say, aha, I got you. See, it doesn't say it. It proves my point. We can't teach infant baptism. And there are some churches that will have their tracks in the back that will say, what does the Bible teach about infant baptism? And then you open it up and it says, nothing. You know, like that's their big, their big uh, nail in the coffin. We got you. There's no way you can contradict that. Well, I guess if you're going to be a smart aleck about it, I will give you my smart aleck response, and that's this. Uh, where does the Bible say you should baptize women? Ooh, controversial. Where does it say those words, baptize women? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. And people will say, well, that's stupid. That's silly. Of course it does. It says baptize all nations. And I'll say, ding, 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 yeah, ding, ding. That's different. Yeah. You're right. They are included in all nations. Certainly we would, we, would, we would agree with you that we are to baptize women and we are to baptize children and babies even. All has a meaning. Yeah. So... You know, some of this goes back to the idea that faith is some sort of rational decision that you make and, uh, uh, you know, that a child, an infant can't do that. And yet Jesus takes babies in his arms and he says, you know, let the little children come, for, come to me and do not hinder them and so on. So, I'm, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is a great topic. Acts chapter 2, Peter, you know, is preaching on the day of Pentecost and the people are cut to the heart. And it says, you know, what must we do to be saved? Peter gives this response to that question. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you seems pretty specific too. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise, the promise of baptism here. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Oh, uh, wow. Peter didn't say, well, all of you adults out there, get in line over here. You children, get in the line over there because this is not for you. He says, repent, every one of you, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of baptism is for you and your children. It's certainly consistent with Jesus' command to baptize all nations, and uh, there's other examples of whole households being baptized in the book of Acts. Certainly, it would include children. But uh, when somebody says that, you know, the Bible doesn't teach anything about infant baptism, don't for a second believe it. In fact, uh, you know, interestingly enough, in St. Paul's letter to Colossians, to the Colossians, he talks about how we've been circumcised by the circumcision done without human hands, how we were baptized into Christ. We were buried with Christ in baptism, he says. Well, uh, now, if you're a first century Jewish person, let's see, 
when was your child to be circumcised? When they were eight days old. So Paul now says that you are circumcised by the circumcision done without human hands. You were buried with Christ in baptism. He says baptism is the new circumcision, supersedes circumcision. There's no doubt in the mind of a Jew, Jewish person, uh, should a baby be baptized? Well, they were circumcised at eight days old. Paul says this is the new circumcision. I mean, and, and this is kind of a, a maybe a peripheral argument, but the point is, is you know, it's incredibly consistent. I mean, if, if it was confusing to them, he would have clarified. Well, when I say that, I don't really mean that you should probably get your babies baptized at eight days old. No, I mean he uses that language knowing full well the freight that it carries and the implications that it has, and yet he goes ahead and he says it anyways. So the Bible certainly tells us that all nations, that is all people, young and old, should be baptized. Now, again, how do we know that little children, as in babies, should be baptized? Uh, again, just simply going through some of the verses Jesus had said, all nations are to be baptized. Uh, Peter says, be baptized every one of you in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the promises for you and for your children. In Mark chapter 10, they were bringing little children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant with his disciples. He was mad, and he said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. First of all, I guess I would ask there, why would the parents be bringing their children to Jesus to touch them? Blessing? Yeah. So they wanted Jesus to bless their children. Why would their children need a blessing? Because they're sinners. They're sinners, right. They didn't say, well, don't worry about the kids. They're, they're perfectly saints until they reach an age of discretion. Those sins that, they, you know, you never had to teach your children to be sinful. You have to teach your children to do the right thing, and that doesn't come easily. But, you know, anybody who says, well, children, you know, their sins don't count against them. Well, that's kind of convenient. You know, where'd they get this get out of jail free card, you know, that I, I'd like one of those, I guess. And some people want to hold kids back until they're 14 when they can make their own decisions, supposedly. Right. Even though, even that, that number, that, that age is sort whatever. of whatever, yeah, uh, arbitrary. And you, when you, tr why that age? Right. Yeah. Why, why whatever they come up with? Why well, couldn't it be 12? Why they, couldn't it be 11 right. if somebody's really mature? I mean, you yeah. start to. You they can't start, really answer that part. No. Well, they can't even point to a verse to that. Right. So. Well, there is nothing. Yeah. So. Anyways, Psalm 51, uh, you know, you had David making the confession that he was brought forth in iniquity and he was sinful from birth, sinful from the time of conception, and sinned it as mother conceived him. So Psalm 51, verse 5. And then you have this interesting conversation between uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus and who comes to Jesus under cover of darkness, John chapter 3. Uh, very, very interesting conversation. Jesus speaks of spiritual truth. Uh, Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. Jesus speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit and being born again, unless one is born from above, quite literally, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, Nicodemus says, well, that's, you know, I don't get it. Like, are you supposed to enter your mother's room a second time and be born again? How does that work? And then Jesus goes on and says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, again, it doesn't say the word baptism. Somebody will say, well, see, it, you're, you're just, you're making this up. Again, n name one place where there's uh, a birth that comes from water and spirit that's not baptism in the New Testament. We just heard it in Acts chapter 2 with Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, 
uh, again, uh, we think about, there's a passage in Titus 3.5, how he saved us through the washing and regeneration of the, of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in, in the next episode. But the point here is Jesus has this conversation and he says that there is a new birth that comes by water and the Spirit. A, a literally, quite literally, a birth that comes from above, from God. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, so sinful flesh begets sinful flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So how does the Spirit give new birth? We certainly don't deny that uh, the Spirit can give new birth through the Word of God, the Gospel. Certainly that's, that's there in the New Testament. Uh, we, we see a lot of adult converts who come to faith by hearing the preaching of the apostles, and then they're immediately baptized. You know, Paul, Paul being one of those. So we, we don't deny that sometimes that's the way it works. But to go the other way and say, well, see, baptism isn't necessary, it doesn't do anything, that's not, that's not true. It's not, a, it's not a correct assumption. And so we want to look at all of those passages of Scripture. We need birth from above. We need birth by the Spirit. Jesus says uh, that birth comes by water and the Spirit. So interesting. From this, uh, we, we learn that infants too are to be baptized because they're included in the words all nations, because Jesus particularly asked that little children be brought to him. And we may not understand how little children, infants can have faith, but uh, certainly the scriptures teach that they can. We have John the Baptist full of the Holy Spirit even from uh, the time he was in his mother's womb. And, you know, Jesus talks about the little children that believe in him, you know, and not forbidding them to come to him because they need their, his blessings as well. So, again, if faith is merely a rational concept that, you know, we, we, we look at all the evidence and we come to this rational decision, I'm going to have faith today, then you could understand why maybe infants can't believe, but that's not true. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. Faith is a miraculous thing. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. And even though we may not understand how an infant can believe, certainly it's the teaching of the scriptures that they can. So even little children, even infants are dead in sin and they must be born again. And this is one of the means through which God bestows new life. Now, somebody might say, well, how do you know infants are sinners? How do you know that they're dead in their sins and trespasses, spiritually speaking? And I guess I would just ask a simple question. Do babies die? Yeah, they do. They, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's a sad thing, but they die every day. We think about sudden infant, you know, death. Or they die in their crib or whatever. They die in accidents. Sometimes they're stillborn. Sometimes they, they don't make it very long. They're born, but they don't make it very long for one reason or another. But the point is, is babies do die. Death is the result of sin. If they're not sinners, they don't die. If they do die. Proof that they are also sinners. The wages of sin is death. So, again, the apostles baptized whole families. If you look at Acts chapter 16 and Acts 18, even 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, you'll, you'll see some references to those types of things. Now, uh, I guess one more little detail that we should, we should talk about here is, uh, well, we can kind of get to this point and say, well, yeah, baptism is something that the Bible says is important. We should be doing that. But who does that usually? And I, at the very outset, I talked about Paul speaking about, you know, him and his apostolic office or the other apostles as well, how they, they saw themselves or they referred to themselves as the stewards of the mysteries of God. Mystery, uh, there you can think of sacraments because that's where the word comes from. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. God has given you an under-shepherd, under the good shepherd, to watch over and care for your soul. He's given the church an office whose job it is to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. We call them pastors. I mean, they can go by different names, priests or, you know, whatever in different churches, but essentially that's their job description. Uh, And the Bible has a lot to say about, you know, the qualifications for such an office, but that's normally who would be considered the stewards of the mysteries. Now, it's not because they have some sort of special powers, but because God has, you know, given this office to the church along with the, the, the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament for the benefit of good order and for our, our benefit as, uh, you know, somebody who watches out for us and administers to us the good news of Christ in word and sacrament. So, uh, all things should be done decently in order, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. So, we see that ordinarily the, the church administers baptism through its called ministers, its pastors. Since through their call, they've been given the responsibility to watch over the proper dispensing of God's grace and word and sacrament. It's not just a a free-for-all. God didn't drop a book from heaven. He didn't just drop the sacraments and say, here, you guys divvy up this this up however you decide fit, and whatever you do, that's good enough, or whatever. It would be mayhem, you know, everybody taking it upon themselves. I'm the pastor. No, you're the pastor. I'm the pastor. Whatever it might be. No, there's order. And uh, God is a God of order. We see that in the family. We see that in society. We see that, uh, you know, in every aspect of life, you know, for our good, God has given us order in marriage and so on. However, it's not as though the pastor has some sort of magic powers. You know, we, we don't teach that ordination gives him magic powers to enact the sacraments like baptism would somehow be more efficacious through him than other people. So it's not a, as though there's some sort of magic power in him. And I should have said uh, earlier, too, that we, as Lutherans, we don't believe that there's some sort of magic in the water. When we talk about baptism, uh, it's not that the water itself is holy. Apart from the Word of God, it's just water. But when the Word of God comes to the water, that's what gives baptism its power, which we'll talk about in the next lesson. But I, I just wanted to make that clear, too, when in terms of you know, why do pastors generally do this? It's because it's their job, it's their calling, and God is God of order. But it's not because they've got some sort of special superpowers that make this more beneficial. So we would say in a case of an emergency, uh, let's say a child is born in the hospital and they know it's not going to live very long. Well, if the parents decide to baptize that child as long as they apply water thrice in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's a legitimate baptism. We, the church would acknowledge that. We don't say, nope, it wasn't done by our pastor. You can't count it. Um, likewise, I know that there are instances where doctors themselves, at least they used to even, would do that for sure. people. Yeah. I think probably more so in Catholic hospitals, but I'm sure that there's probably still a few out there that would do that now. So we would recognize that. We would recognize that as a legitimate baptism. And, uh, you know, we talk about believing in one baptism for the remission of sins in the creed. Uh, there are a lot of people who, because their understanding of baptism is such that they would say it's something that we offer to God, what happens if it doesn't take? What if you don't see the results that you want? What if, you know, somehow you backslide and you fall from the faith for a time and then you come back? Well, I guess you better redo it so they would be rebaptized. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But 
we, we believe in one baptism. And we do acknowledge that the baptisms performed in other denominations, and other churches, as long as they're done properly according to Christ's institution, those are legitimate Christian baptism, baptisms. We don't make a person be rebaptized. Now, if they were to come to us, let's say, from uh, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons or something where we'd say they deny the Trinity, uh, that would not be a legitimate baptism. And uh, unfortunately, even within liberal Christianity today, it seems as though there are some church bodies uh, that are borderline denying the Trinity, even a couple that bear the name Lutheran. So we, we have to be very, very careful as we go forward that we understand where a person was baptized and what their belief, at least as according to that. That's, I guess, a, a, you know, kind of a peripheral issue here. I don't want to get sidetracked, but uh, so we would say the church ordinarily administers baptism through called ministers, since through their call has been given their responsibility for the proper dispensing of God's grace and word and sacrament. However, in an emergency, any Christian may and even should baptize. In our, in our hymnals and in our catechisms, there's usually an emergency order for baptism. If somebody found themselves in such a situation, they could look at that and uh, follow directions, so to speak. So that's uh, where we're going to leave off for part one in our discussion of baptism. And uh, hopefully you'll join us for our next episode where we will continue that discussion. So for Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you next time.